Good afternoon. I want to welcome you to our very first Odyssey program where we will use this little device to capture the oral history of many different members of our congregation. This being our first. It is an honor to introduce to you Dell, who has been a member since you said 74. Is that right? Something like that. 1970. Um, We gather around you today to not only hear your story, but to honor you. Thank you. And we also would like to thank um, Wilder and Anne-Marie Seltzer for coming up with this idea, because it was them who addressed the issue of a generational divide, wanting more opportunity for generations to connect and to capture one's stories so that it can become a part of the history of our congregation. With that said, please give a warm welcome to our guest. Thank you very much. It's a surprise to see so many of you and familiar faces and some not familiar which is good to be able to learn to who you are find out who you are I would like to report on my life today as I was asked to do and I'll be pulling together pieces of my life because since 1970 is it 70 I've, I've been 92 years uh, around this planet and my voice is getting so I can hardly hear anymore that's my voice I don't hear it (laughs) (laughs) so what I'd like to do is to begin by saying that my mother was a daughter of a child of 10 children the grandparents were from Switzerland and the grandfather settled on this farm about five miles north of La Crosse, Wisconsin, in a big house and all the rest of their equipment, barns and what have you. And during the years, as I was growing up, the, the folks got, came together, the brothers and sisters and their spouses. So there was always a lot of, there were always a lot of people around on the weekend, but especially where there are a lot of kids, and we had a lot of fun playing, a lot of play, thing, playing, going in the barn and, and, and jumping in the hay, and I even remember going down into the bottom of the barn and petting the bull. Uh, I was not supposed to do that, because <laughs> he was penned up. So. After uh, after a few words, I'll have to read some things. Our yellow pages. Yeah. After uh, my I uh, was going to say my my father was eighty some years old. I think eighty eight years old when he died, and I was five. There was no communication between him and myself. We did not have anything in common. My mother was a boss 
of everything, and especially after he left. And then she took a job to the Indian School in Neosho, Wisconsin, which is about 80 miles northeast of La Crosse. And this Indian School was built about this time and had never been used before. And I remember when the school first opened, the Indian children were accompanied by their parents, of course. And uh, they were drawn by horse and buggy. There were no cars at that time. This is 1920. And you couldn't get through the roads in the springtime. If you did have a car, you wouldn't get through. You'd get stuck in the mud. During the winter, you could get stuck in the snow. So that was the situation I came into. And then from the Winnebago Indian School, I went to the public school, which is around a little less than a mile away, where the regular people went. And But I lived at the Indian School uh, during, the, during the week. But on, Monday, on the weekends, I would go off to my playmates up in the, in the town or do something else. So that was that. And I learned very little Winnebago. But I did learn one or two songs, a couple words. I have, for example, one word is called Weiskabara. Weiskabara means bread. And Weiskopsko Giesbach means fry bread or donuts. <laughs> and this is what they liked. They, on Saturdays, they had a little money to spend. They would go into town and they would buy Weiskopsko Giesbach because that was what they grew up on, on fried bread to a large extent. Okay, my mother married again. She married in 1926, and she was married to H.H. H. Eberhardt, who was called Eberhardt in Wisconsin. But if I say Eberhardt here, they say Eberhardt who? <laughs> so I use the word Eberhardt, and they know what I mean. And she married this man who was a furniture and under revolver business and it was very successful except that he was very generous and a lot of people would buy furniture or anything on time and when he died certainly thereafter there were a lot of debts and a lack of money and the depression was coming on and so we had to take it easy and not say much because say very much because we couldn't afford to spend much money. And this went on for quite some while. I finished high school and college, and I went to a local college in Wisconsin, which my mother sent me to. And that's important because after my father, alleged father died, my mother was in charge of everything I said or did. And that's part of what my problem was throughout life.
because I, I haven't been able to develop my own initiative, my own solutions, and make my own choices. I always felt that I was going to have to be a minister. And, then I, and, and here we come from a psychological jargon. Why did I like to be a great minister? To compensate for my feelings of inferiority. That was a very strong urge to try to be the greatest preacher, preacher, greatest teacher that anyone had ever heard. And obviously, this was not true. It was not the case. As a matter of fact, I, I, I will get on to this in a minute. I don't want to lose my way. Yeah, I liked, I liked the, the, the high school and, and the church college, particularly because I love basketball and football and track, and I engaged in all these things. But my studies, I didn't like very well. And so I had to take one or two over during my school years, which you have to do if you're going to pass. You have to pass the exams. Eventually, I did graduate, and I graduated from high school with a B average, which was, for me, a good thing. <laughs> As time went on, I went to four seminaries, and I like to go to five years of teaching school and the years that followed. So I went to several teachers' college and seminaries. I think it was four or five seminaries. And one I went to was down in Nashville, Tennessee. Another one I went to was in Berkeley at Pacific School of Religion. And another one, the Unitarian Fellowship, uh, uh, the Ministerial Training for Unitarian Ministers in Berkeley on the hill where the several schools were together. So I, I took many jobs as time went on, and between jobs, I was often distressed because where was my focus? I couldn't focus because I had this ought feeling, should feeling, that I should be a great minister, and I wasn't emotionally free to choose an occupation. And as a result, I became a psychotherapist, or a rehab counselor, and a minister. And, a minister. and my psychotherapy was included in Alfred Adler Institute in Manhattan, where I went for four years. And I also went to two other theological, or seminaries, theological, I'll get this right after a bit, schools for training psychotherapists. One was a group therapy, and the other was a, a, therapy, a gestalt, gestalt therapy procedure, which I used in my therapy. And I did go to a job at South Beach Psychiatric, and I worked there for 14 years as a rehab counselor. And during that same time, I also had my own practice, my private practice in my home, which I kept going after I resigned from the South Beach Psychiatric. 
1941, I guess it was, I married, I married Betsy. And in 1980, Mary and I were married. Betsy died a few years ago. Hello. Right here, right here. Huh? Right here. We stood right here. Oh, right. She remembers things I forgot. So, <laughs> so anyway, I married her, and Hank Kopitz was our minister. And some of you know him, who used to be a minister here. And then I also should mention that I, I loved not only sports, but I loved hiking and running, and I was very active physically. Now, today, I can't walk. I, I need a wheelchair to get around. And at first, I wasn't feeling good, but of late, the past year, I have feeling pretty good. I haven't felt sick, which is great, because I was feeling sick initially after I broke my leg, and it was said I couldn't be on my leg for three years two years, and after that I favored it. Okay, I'll put this down here. I'll come to that later. Okay. And I want to say a word about the Indian school. Like the, the Indians were all Winnebago's, and they were mostly from around Black River Falls Wisconsin Dells in Wisconsin. And as I said, they came by horse and buggy or wagon. And it must be about 80 or so of them came at the first at the first time. The man who took charge of this our operation was somebody we called Mr. Ben. He was one of four men and one woman, and he had been he had enrolled in the University of Wisconsin, excuse me, University of California in, the, in, New, in New York. I got things get all mixed up sometimes. So he, he was enrolled at University of California in Berkeley. When the, when the school opened, he was raised in an Indian territory with his brothers and his sister, and he spoke fluent Winnebago. And he was a very bright man, and they called him to come and be the superintendent of the school, which he, he did, he went. And he became the superintendent of the school for all these years. And he helped raise the money to keep, to feed the children. It was done, it was reformed, was, was was uh, run by the Reformed Church. I don't know if any of you know about the Reformed Church. Do I see any hands of anybody who knows? Okay, the, the Calvinist Church was very, very orthodox, very given to hardline Christian doctrine, I believe, and you should, this, should do this and do that. And so I was very much inhibited in making a choice for myself, vocationally and occupationally. But he did all right himself, Mr. Ben. And he took care of those kids, 
seven or eighty of them for all these years, for about seventy years I think it was, that the school was in existence. And he took care of almost all of the children's problems because he was medically oriented and he knew a lot. He had, he had a big volume of books on his shelf which he was able to refer to. And when he got to a question that he didn't know the answer to, he would call Dr. Housley, who was a physician in, in downtown Nielsville. And, and that way, these Indian children were kept out of hospitals. They were kept at the school and also kept going. I got to slow down a little bit. Yes, he also raised money by touring many of the reformed churches which existed in Pennsylvania and Ohio where this denomination was very often existing. The Indian children had, had almost no contact with white people and they spoke Winnebago and many of them couldn't speak English or hardly spoke. So Mr. Ben had made a requirement that all the children had to speak English. Can you imagine having to speak a language you didn't, you wasn't familiar with? And that's what they had to do. But that was the way they learned to speak the Winnebago. At the same time, they learned to speak English, I mean. But at the same time, they, they would get a hold of their own, their own church or denomination. These, the homes they came from were in the woods. Some of them were made out of tents, some of them were built out of log houses and so on. They were very, very poor people. And unfortunately, some of the, uh, some of the customs and traditions of the Indian children was not, were not honored in the school. In other words, we didn't have special days that were Winnebago-oriented. And this was a major criticism of the school, that the children didn't, were not encouraged to keep their own language and their own customs, their own traditions, their own birthdays and all that sort of thing, which I think we can recognize how important that is to us because we are connected with our parents and relatives and they couldn't do that in their in their daily life. The children were supplied with food and clothing by the school, and the churches back in the, in the eastern part of the United States would send huge boxes of gifts of food and shoes and good things around Thanksgiving time in time to arrive there for Christmas so that for Christmas, everybody had a special bag of good things that they liked, and some toys, and food, and the children had free run of the whole school during that day. They normally are restricted. The boys are not, the boys on one side and the girls on the other side, except when they went to school. Oh yes, I wanted to say one word about the Indians' names. They had names like White White Horse, Yellow Cloud, 
Thunderbird and other other derivatives taken from this atmosphere and from the earth. And this is how they prevent, prevented intermarriage. In other words, you would marry a, same, a person who had the same back, background name as you. You'd, you'd marry somebody who was a different of the clouds or the heavens or the earth, whichever you happen to be. So that we kept from from interbreeding. I think I'm through with this one now. Well, you didn't sing. Pardon me? You didn't sing. Oh, yes, I see I have a note here. <laughs> I learned very little Indian language because I didn't sleep with them. I only went with them during the, the time when there was no school in session. But I did learn one song that I remember somewhat for to this day. It's an Indian version of the Winnebago version of the Lord's Prayer. He rukanana china ganahach rachan virek china jana gawang shigna vivira he sketchira na jana egimanigus kokizokra no kanakchi no kanakchi why he uha jawigeska the Lord's Prayer. After I grew older and we went to college, I migrated to California. How did I migrate? I got my thumb out. That's <laughs> how so I traveled. The day that I left, I had a few dollars in my pocket really a few dollars. But I got a $10 bill. My Aunt Hattie sent me a $10 bill as part of a graduation present. And with this few dollars, I hitchhiked to California. I went all the way on that, about $15. And the last night, after I got into Mill in California, I slept on a bank on the side of the road because it didn't quite make my destination. So I rolled up in my blanket, but in the morning I moved very cautiously because there were snakes around in the mountains. So I moved very, very cautiously so that if there were a snake next to me, he would be moving when I started, when I started moving. And, he, and nothing happened at that. But then I got a job, and I don't know how many of you have been to Yosemite National Park. Has any of you been in Yosemite yep. National Park? Okay, well this park is between two mountains that were carved out by the glacier, and they're very precipitous on both sides, and there are waterfalls coming out of different parts of this valley. And in the springtime, the waterfalls are full and they're beautiful. What do they do in the fall? Well, they build a fire during the day out of ashes from the trees, not ashes, but bark from the trees. And they build a big fire. And around 
8 o'clock or 8.30, whatever it is, it's dark. Someone calls up above, Hello, Glacier, are you ready? And the other one calls back, he says, Ready! And they push all the coals over the cliff and make some beautiful firefalls of the key of the ashes from the fire. And that's done it every day. Then I got a job working in the hotel. The hotel was the Awadi Hotel. The Awadi is the first class hotel and only people that are well off can live there. The rest of the people live in tents or cabins. And I got a job working in the kitchen in that hotel after I got there. And believe me, I enjoyed that kitchen a lot because I was hungry from all those days traveling. And I got the job through a fellow who had just graduating, was graduated from the University of California in Berkeley. So he invited me to come in and take his job. And then he also invited me to come and sleep in his bed if I wanted, and I sure did want it. And I, and I was very grateful for that. And gradually I made some friends, and I had work to do after, after the hotel kitchen. I worked with the gardener. She took care of all kinds of flowers and shrubs that grew around this Awani Hotel. And during the summer, we would go on trips now and then, looking for flowers and plants growing out of the trees in the mountains around there. And that was how my summer was spent. Now, I'm not really sure what I did after that, but uh, excuse me for a minute. Yeah, that. After that, I learned about the American Friends Service Committee. It's a Quaker organization that implements practical activities over against sermons and religious services. They focus on doing things. So I became acquainted with the psychiatric, with the Winnebago Indian School. I got it right. It's getting a little bit mixed up. I got mixed up with this, with the AFSC, the American Friends Service Committee. And there are some leaflets on the table out there, two kinds of leaflets that you may help yourself to tell about, something about the, the American Friends Service Committee. And the, the Friends have a school in Pendle Hill. And I was chosen to go to this school where I would learn to become a relief workers in, in Europe. So the Friends organized workers, teams of workers throughout different parts of Germany following the end of World War II. And uh, I happened to land in the Hungarian section. Obviously, I didn't speak Hungarian, and we had to have a translator. And when we got, we drove by Jeep, a couple 
couple trucks and a couple jeeps, we drove our team of nine people to Budapest following the war. And, and Europe was in chaos at that time. Now all the houses and buildings were destroyed. I mean, the railroads were destroyed. And it was in chaos. And there was a lot of hardship because money was no longer good because they had, they would, they no longer created wealth during this war 